Josh, Film Spotting, we're here with one of our special marathon episodes. You're hearing, appropriately, music from the fourth film in our Satchiget Ray Marathon, 1958's The Music Room. It also happens to be Ray's fourth feature. And this whole process, Josh, so far with the first three films we've talked about over two podcasts, it's been very rewarding getting feedback from listeners, whether it's emails or seeing comments on Twitter and Facebook. They might be sharing their love of Ray's films. They already came to the marathon being familiar with his work or we've heard a lot of people sharing their joy in discovering these movies because of our marathon selfishly i'd say the best feedback yet is a listener doing our job for us giving us a brilliant setup to begin this discussion this is ben Howes from houston texas i'm calling him some thoughts on the next film in your satyajit ray marathon in the music room I approached the music room the same way as you and was stunned by how dark, austere, and bitter the film was in comparison to the Apu trilogy, while still, in my opinion, being a masterpiece. While the Apu films certainly have a harshness to them, the entire tone of the music room is more akin to the work of Antonioni or Alain René, so I have two questions for you. Uh, first, were you also surprised that Ray attempted this more surreal and elusive tone? And for the next two films, are you hoping for more of a return to the bittersweet warmth of the Apu trilogy, or do you hope for more of the cold intensity of the music room? Maybe it's just me, but I think I need more of the humanist ray in my life. Loving the marathon and this show as always. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Ben. And no, really, thank you. Can we get more of these, Josh, these perfectly <laughs> succinct, articulate listener intros? I'll Makes take it them. easy, right? It really does. Ben asks there if we're looking forward to seeing Ray return to the more hopeful, less bitter approach of the Apu films. And it's worth noting that Ray himself did just that. He followed the music room with The World of Apu, a film that, as we covered, features its fair share of suffering and sadness, but certainly is not as bleak as this movie about a zamindar, an aristocratic landlord who squanders his fortune throwing lavish concerts at his palace. When we meet him at the beginning of the movie, he's basically given up on life. He's completely disengaged from the world around him. He's not even aware what month it is. He's basically me most of the time here on Film Spotting. Were you, Josh? You have that vacant look in your eyes. I'm telling you. Were you, like Ben, surprised at the stark austerity of the music room after seeing the Apu trilogy? And do you, too, need more of the humanist ray in your life? I suppose if we really wanted to get deep, you could also tackle whether you accept that the music room isn't humanist. Yeah, I, I would argue that it is, especially by its ending. And I don't necessarily long for a return to the other sort of emotive sensibility of the Opu films. This felt to me, I really liked how it took that different direction at the beginning. Surreal, as Ben, as ben said, mm -hmm. is the right word. For sure. That opening shot of this 
can a chandelier be disembodied? I don't know, but that's that's what it feels like with mm-hmm. this deep black yeah, space. Pitch black. And then this glowing chandelier in the middle that just seems to be hovering of its own power. Boy, I, I didn't know what to make of that. And if you had put that up against any of the frames from the Opu trilogy, you would be hard-pressed to match the director, I think, which was exciting mm-hmm. for me. Uh, I wouldn't want to see another film that did essentially the same things that the Opu films did, even though they did have each their own personality. Uh, we can probably get to where we think this movie ends up uh, when we make our way towards the ending, but I did feel what Ben was talking about for much of its running time and sense that, if anything, it was harsher about this tension that all of his films we've seen have explored between the ways of the past and modernity. It felt a more judgmental of Roy, the main character played by Chabi Biswas, and that felt very different to me because the other films we we talked quite often about how there was this sentimentality for the rural way of life, the older way of life, but a recognizing that uh, for Opu especially to have a better chance at a life, he would need to move into the modern world. Mm-hmm. So, Or at least just being fascinated by it, being drawn to fascinated it. Fascinated by it, and, and he, he would have been left behind. You know, his, his intellectual gifts, let's say, would not have been able to flower mm-hmm. uh, if he had stayed in that village. Here, boy, it, it, for almost until we get to the end, and it makes a very subtle and interesting shift, you could say it's a dismantling of the emptiness of this aristocratic way of life. Now, the, the difference, obviously, is that it's it's not rural. This is not a lower class citizen. So there's a class issue at play here, mm-hmm. but also a, a traditional, a questioning of traditions. Right. And what are the real values of those? And he so is I did, similarly isolated, though. Uh, yes, quite isolated. I mean, rural is almost accurate in terms of him feeling like he's out in the wilderness. He's he away seems from to preside society. over this, yes, this, this rural kingdom of his own. It, not very well. Mm-hmm. In addition to squandering his fortune on these concerts, there are comments that he has not paid attention to his duties as a landowner. And that has come back to haunt him as well. So it was a marked difference aesthetically and thematically until it did kind of come around to the ending, which we mm. should get to. Yeah, this is a film looking at it in comparison to the previous three movies, which you can't help but do. It feels very different in so many ways, even though it's covering similar ground in terms of tradition versus modernity. And no, I didn't enjoy it as much, but that's because it's a much more difficult film to watch. It simply is, I think. And it's because of some of those adjectives that Ben appropriately used. Stark, austere, bitter, surreal, elusive. And as we were talking about isolated, it's more closed off from the world. The Apu films feel like this embrace, this this going out into the world and seeing what it has to offer. And this movie is as self-contained as its main character. He doesn't leave the estate. Yeah, so he's not interested in any of that. Exactly. So there's also the fact that virtually every shot is from his point of view, which I think does help us identify with him on some level, even though he's a very difficult person to identify with. And I know we'll get into that. But at the same time, we do feel isolated because he's isolated himself. He's also, as you said, Josh, he's closed off from history. He's closed off from progress. This whole notion of the old traditions and the new ways, the car that the moneylender's son, this moneylender, his son becomes the nouveau riche Mm -hmm. who moves into the area and creates his own palace to sort of compete with our landlord, and he does become a rival of sorts for Ray. And we see him later in the movie roll up in one of his cars, and we see his trucks throwing dust up everywhere. And on this decaying estate that Roy has, he's got 
an old elephant. Yeah, he still rides horses. Yeah, <laughs> when exactly. he bothers to ride. And it's interesting too that that nouveau riche character, he says at one point, if we take him at face value, that he actually gets treated worse by the other people living in the area, the other community members, than the landlord does because he's a self-made man. They somehow actually respect the nobility mm-hmm. that just comes from the societal well, you were born. structures. Yeah, you were born into it. You have this palace, so you're somehow better than the guy that they're actually jealous of who, well, I assume it's a sort of jealousy, who didn't have that and yet made something of himself. They don't like him. They don't see in him a character that they can one day aspire to be. They actually resent him for he's it. He's disrupting the the form that everyone should be following yeah. for sure yeah it it made me think of i did find the character approachable maybe isn't the right word but fairly engaging because he reminded me very much of a really remarkable film that came out a few years later, Visconti's The Leopard, Mm. with Burt Lancaster as this Italian aristocrat. And very, very similar situation where it's a a guy trying to hold on to the traditions of the past, um, ignoring the waves of the future. Now, that one is, I would say, more sympathetic. It really enjoys the lushness of his lifestyle. We, We get a few scenes showing how that's fading away, but a lot of scenes of how rich that mm-hmm. is and uh, this film is quite similar in terms of how it has an affection you can sense an affection for the main character that slowly comes out a little bit more towards the end and that nouveau riche neighbor it's interesting plays a key role in our understanding of that affection or at least mine because the more we get to know him he we get to sense that he's not maybe a pretender but he's He's classless in a way that he almost has no respect Mm. for any of these traditions. By the final concert that Roy throws, they have, in a way, switched identities. And the Nouveau Riche neighbor comes in and is is disrespectful to the scene that he has set up. He certainly, we don't get the impression that he enjoys the music, the art that Roy has arranged. And so all of a sudden we start to see, okay, maybe there are some elements to Roy's character that are worth preserving, that are honorable. And he's made a mess of those things. Uh, But it's the, the ending of the film did start to, to switch that a little bit in my mind. Hmm. Well, I want to get into that specifically because this movie did remind me a little bit. And actually, first, I want to say The Leopard, I haven't seen it, so I can't comment on that. But I wondered, actually, if you were going to mention the character from last year's Nuri Bilga Jalan movie, Winter Sleep, mm. is who I thought of a little bit. This sure. guy kind of lording yeah. over his territory, thinks he's the king of the castle, does not want to give in to the new ways and is a really sort of tough character to sympathize with and to empathize with at times. And this character is so tough to really, I think, try to understand that it makes me think of one of my favorite poems. I don't know if you know this poem by Theodore Rothke called My Papa's Waltz, but it's one of those poems that I remember getting into first year, freshman year of school, literary analysis for this very reason that I'm about to mention, which is depending on how you read the lines and the word choices very carefully and specifically and what baggage you bring to the poem. It's either a son remembering his childhood and specifically a dance with his father very warmly and fondly, or it's basically a scene of a kid being abused. Hmm. It holds a mirror up to the reader, I think, in a way that this movie also does with the viewer. There's a similar sense of ambivalence in how we view this master. And you can look at it right down the line, sort of make a pros and cons list in terms of what you think of in terms of a good character. Forget interesting or provocative or whatever you want in a character. Just do you sympathize with him? Are you rooting for him? 
he is a supporter of the arts. There's no doubt about that. He genuinely loves music. He isn't just doing these recitals, these performances to boost his image. He really is profoundly he's moved a, he's a connoisseur. by the music, and that's something. And he adores these performers and their performances. Okay, so we'll give him that. He's also someone, in terms of sympathy, he suffers. There's no doubt. Yeah, I think like that's all an important of Ray's, element. Yeah, like all of Ray's characters, he suffers greatly. And at the beginning of the film, as I mentioned, he is essentially wasting away. I mean, he is dying kind of before our eyes, if not physically, which I think you could make the case that he is, certainly spiritually he is in some ways. So you at least pity him. I, I think you can give him that. With that, though, Josh, there's no doubt that throughout the film we watch him make terrible decision after terrible decision, I'd argue mainly to assuage his own ego as much, if not more so than because of his love for music. There's a pettiness to this character that matches that appreciation for music. And there is this key scene late in the film that I know you're talking about, the one with the nouveau riche character, where he upstages him Mm -hmm. in a very grand way. And you could try to make the case that it's because he's upholding some tradition, but I don't think you can watch that scene and say it's about respecting the performer. It's about disrespecting putting that character. He's putting him in his place. Exactly. Saying, I get to do this first. That's so right. There's a real pettiness to him. And I love that after that scene, when everyone leaves and he's in his drunken revelry, he uses the line. I mean, just the height of irony, the definition of irony is what arrogance. He, he screams <laughs> right, what arrogance right. in reference to that character, which, of course, actually what he's doing is describing himself perfectly. The other thing is he's just this character who is so steadfast in his ways, as we said, hanging on to this old worldview. And why wouldn't you, if you were him, under the old worldview, he's a great man. He basically doesn't have to do anything, and everyone loves and respects him because it's just in his noble blood. But he's the only main character we've seen in any of these Ray films so far who doesn't change as the world changes at all. Maybe the father, to Mm -hmm. some extent, but even he finally gets out of his shell, not so much by choice, but by having to and moves to the city at the end of Father Panchali. So he really is the only character that just seems totally stuck in his ways, and I think that makes him less sympathetic, and there's more that we can get into. I would say at his most disturbing in that revelry at the end, the way Ray shoots him, he's almost like a figure from a horror movie. The background, the depth of field has gone away. He's shot low in a close-up. He's almost grotesque, and he's framed awkwardly too where there's all this extra headspace he seems like someone ray is even emphasizing this man is so cut off from the world and reality that we are supposed to see him as a little bit off there's certainly a wells touch in those final Mm -hmm. scenes and you get the sense of citizen kane the the tirade that kane goes on early in the film it's it's kind of a matching scene and because of the camera work for sure i think that this character you could say he doesn't maybe become sympathetic by the end, but he develops an air of tragedy or loss that he maybe didn't have at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's changed at all. I don't think the decision to throw this last party is because he's come to any sort of epiphany about his life or how he may have wished he had lived it or how this party may put him on a new direction. I'd agree with that. Right. Um, it, it's may be interesting to dissect why does he throw that party to me it seemed to be he was shocked out of his days by the neighbor's music mm-hmm. early in the film and that 
brought to mind all of these concerts he used to have. So much of the film is a memory, actually, going back to the years before it is. the money ran out and he lost his family and, and other things happened. And then we get to this decision again late in life to have one last fling. Uh, and you're right. It's it's primarily, I got the sense, out of a selfish nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me let me have that one more time. That's it. Uh, so maybe you can't call that honorable, but I think it does allow for some of these other noble characteristics, not noble in the sense of class, but in the sense of intention to come to the surface that we didn't recognize before. We do learn a little bit more about the man uh, than we did when we saw him just laying on that chair at the very beginning of the film. Yeah. And I think Ray is certainly playing with that ambivalence and that complexity to the character where during that rant at the end, he's talking about his noble ancestors, but the camera is focused the whole time on the mirror. And I think that that mirror is very telling, Josh, because it's the music room and He sits in the audience in that front seat looking at the people performing, and he's genuinely interested in what they're doing and cares very passionately about their performance, as we've said. But the mirror is right behind them. So he gets the dual benefit of watching them right in front of him, but also seeing himself the entire time. It makes them part of the performance, right? Yeah. Puts them on the same level. Yeah. And I did watch on the Criterion Collection edition of this movie, Mira Nair, the filmmaker who made The Namesake and Monsoon Wedding, among other films. She talks about her love for this movie. And it's just funny, as I get back to that point I was making about my papa's waltz, she has a real affection for this landlord character. And one of the things she uses in his defense is she says that he's not this high-handed husband character who just seems to be dictating everything has to be a certain way. And one of the things she says is he's almost like a child. Yes. When he talks to... The husband-wife scene is played that way, Yeah, when he talks to his wife and when he talks to his son. And I would counter to that. It's precisely because he talks like a child who hasn't grown up and who does insist on getting his way that he comes off to me as the high-handed husband and even his relationship with the servants she says that his servants clearly do have a love for him because they stay with him they're loyal and he's not cruel to them and i think well isn't that a little bit depressing that we're supposed to read that and really pride him on the fact that well he's not cruel to them he does nevertheless josh passive aggressively make them stay and at one point he openly deprives them of taking another opportunity because he's so dependent on them so there are these real negatives to this character as i think we've made clear by now and i am fascinated by such a difficult character even if there's something maybe less inherently satisfying about only having that character to follow and see the world through his point of view when we felt so deeply for Apu, Apu's sister, Apu's mother, even the father to some extent. You mentioned the word tragic. I think he does certainly take on some tragic characteristics. I wonder if I would have really been entranced by this movie and been as really hooked by it as I was the previous movies in this marathon if I had felt a little bit more of that tragic sense of a character trying to do the right thing, really trying to do the right thing, not being so stuck in his ways. I know that that ultimately is what is his defining tragic flaw. And yet I wanted to feel more for him than I did. The entire film has a more formal aesthetic and feel to it that does keep us at a remove. When we say tragic, going back to our discussions about how quietly the Apu films handled real loss and and death scenes. Think of the death scene we get here. It's almost the opposite of what we praise the Opu films for. Mm-hmm. It's it's this big dun dun yeah. and you know the the body draped and the screaming mm-hmm. it, and it 
was such a contrast to me that I, I was trying to figure out what, why did we make this shift? And, and But then I realized the entire film has sort of made this formalistic shift. And you can see it in the acting, too, the acting style. None of the performances here are anywhere near the naturalistic uh, the mother's performance in Opu, the various actors who played him at his different ages, those were all the sort of acting style where you feel like the camera wasn't even there. Yeah. Here, Capturing them. it's very theatrical. It is. And again, I think it's part of the intentional way of presenting this story of tradition and formality. But I think it does keep us at a little bit of a remove. And it's probably what you're responding mm-hmm. to and what I what I felt, too. Yeah, definitely. And of course, worth pointing out that most of the actors in Father Panchali and throughout the trilogy, at least a good portion of them, quote unquote, non-actors. Non-professional, and right. here we are dealing with professional actors, the main actor here the star is one of the biggest stars in indian cinema at the time as i understand it so you're absolutely right that it's not just that main character it's also the overall style the formal structure and formal elements of this movie i wasn't surprised to read that it was based on a short story because it does seem to me in terms of being that self-contained universe and being almost more of an allegory it's a sort of parable by the end of it it doesn't necessarily feel as sweeping you know as those previous Apu films, and it's also there in the camera. We saw this a little bit in The Unvanquished. We started to see some of these more symbolic cinematic touches, really using the camera not just to convey story or character motivation or emotion, but really almost in kind of a Russian montage way to cut to something real quick and give you a a feeling, give you a jolt of something. We see that here in this film to a heightened degree. The camera is used very expressively to say something that the dialogue couldn't. And that allegorical nature to it, I think, does sort of also keep you at a little bit of a distance. Think about not only the mirror we talked about, the chandelier that you mentioned at the very beginning, but how about the supernatural sequence at the end of this film where the candles start burning out all around one by him. one, one by one, very clearly suggesting this sort of fading of, I think, anyway, his life. It made me think of the Bellatar film, The Turin Horse, where something similar happens to characters in that setting, where that's about all they have is potatoes and these very dim lights in their little shack of a place. And then those even go out and they don't have that anymore. The webs, the spider Later, we see the chandelier that has the webs in it, and then later there's one of those sequences where he's talking about his ancestors and the spider, which isn't really explained. I don't think it's something we need to make logical sense out of, but it does somehow suggest something about his state of mind. It's symbolic of something. Maybe it's just that I've watched too many Bergman films. Yeah, as you're talking, those are what's coming to mind, those films. Yeah, for sure, but I love the evocativeness of the camera here, including, I mentioned the shots that are close up where we don't get that deep focus, but those wide shots of the palace that do take advantage of the depth of field, it gives you the sense of the grandeur of this place, of what it used to be, but even what it still is because he juxtaposes it with the decay of the world around yeah. him. You it's really, so that's flat very around clear. It, it is. barren and it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's an isolated image. I think it would have been, well, you take that chandelier and you take that mirror out of this movie. <laughs> and, you know, those are the two co-stars, I think, after the, For sure. after the main character. And I, I think what that opening image does, it's certainly transfixing. And we're cast under its spell as it's held there in the dark, this chandelier. And essentially, that's what often will have the main character 
gazing at the chandelier in his music room. So he's similarly transfixed. Mm-hmm. And I love that detail as you're talking about uh, little insert shots of him looking down into his glass of wine and seeing the reflection of the chandelier in that yeah. and being transfixed. And it's a, it's almost maybe that is what that opening image is supposed to be, the chandelier in the wine with the cup just taken away this time. Yeah. And so this is a return to it. Yeah, it's fitting, too. He found a very sly way here to kind of have his cake and eat it, too, because Ray makes a movie about music very much and about performance and use some popular artists of the time who were really acclaimed to be featured in these scenes and they're wonderful performances but they are very long and this gets back i think a little bit to the short story nature of it there really aren't any other characters in this movie so to fill up the runtime he's got to shoot (laughs) you think it's just filler i think it's part of it but that's what i'm saying he gets to not only make it part of the story and it's appropriate to the story but also one of the things that ray was so Influential, And one of the reasons that he stood out so much in Indian cinema was because there was this tradition of music Mm -hmm. and dancing, as there still is being very prominent in these movies. And he sort of defied all that with the Apu movies. And here he gets to make it a featured part, as I said, a prominent part of the storyline. But at the same time, it does accomplish that sort of box office need of mm. having those elements to it. Yeah, it is it is noticeable that we get the performances from beginning to end, but but as you're saying it fits in because yeah. that is the experience that this character would right. want to have of it. We need to see his full appreciation and understand like like you said earlier that he really does, he is a connoisseur of this. So in 2 weeks is it the big city or the lonely wife? I don't know. I don't either. I haven't I haven't uh, tried to find the DVD yet, so <laughs> we really should prepare better for these marathon reviews, Josh. We've you can got find two out. Weeks. Come on. We do have 2 weeks. You have 2 weeks to get caught up. You can find out which movie is next in the marathon by going to filmspotting.net and clicking on marathons. That's what we will be doing after this show. Now, on our last marathon episode, I teased the fact that there was some news about new editions of the Apu trilogy coming out, but I'd forgotten to include the email. So the timing of this is actually perfect, Josh. I wanted to close with this email we got back before we talked about the second and third films in the trilogy from Ben Haworth, longtime listener in Houston, Texas. And he says, first off, wanted to say how much I love the first part of the Ray Marathon. I'm so glad Adam and especially Josh hold Father Panchali in such high regard. I'm a huge Apu Trilogy fan and cannot be happier that your high praise for it is reaching so many others who will surely seek it out now. Now, for some good news that I thought you'd like to share with your listeners. Upon discovering so many of Ray's films on Criterion, I got to wondering why they hadn't tackled his most famous work. Turns out, they have. For several years now, Criterion has been putting a massive amount of effort into restoring the Apu trilogy. Also, just in time for the marathon, they are discussing their progress for the first time at the Cinema Revival Festival at the end of February. While they are not debuting the unfinished films yet, they will be presenting an hour-long presentation on their incredible work so far. And we'll get to more on this in a second. Ben says, unfortunately, living in Austin means I can't take time out to go see this presentation. But maybe one of you would like to make the apparent five and a half hour drive. I'm only kidding, but I hope some Ohio listener out there can make it to this event because I can't wait to see the guaranteed amazing work Criterion has done for this masterful series. While the description sounds like the Blu-ray release is still a long ways away, it's good to know that very soon the trilogy will get the home video release it so desperately deserves. Ben also says that the world of Apu was his personal favorite in the Apu trilogy. So where I said the timing was perfect here, Josh, is this Cinema Revival Festival going on in Columbus actually starts today, the day that we're posting this review, Wednesday, February 25th. And on Friday, the 27th, that's when they're doing their hour-long presentation about the work 
that they've been doing on the Apu Trilogy. So there you some go. of our listeners in the area can maybe seek that out and go hear about that amazing work and report back to us. We would love to share it on an upcoming marathon episode. That's it for this marathon episode. We will check back with you in a couple of weeks. And of course, don't forget to listen to the usual Friday film spotting episode where we will be discussing the New Zealand mock documentary, What We Do in the Shadows, and we're sharing our top five mockumentary moments. Should be fun. Da, 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 da,